Okay, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. The ushers will come forward and give you a Bible. While you're turning there, the last time we saw the Apostle Paul's defense before Governor Felix. And today we're going to see the Apostle Paul speak before King Agrippa. Uh, Two Sundays ago, we got some pretty good details about uh, King Agrippa, his life, and uh, his mannerisms and, and things to that nature. So I'm going to start in verse uh, 1, chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. So in the beginning, Paul says, I think myself happy. In the Greek word, it's makarion, which means actually fortunate or blessed. Now, that word makarion has a positive connotation in other parts of the scripture. In Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter 5, it's in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. So fortunate, blessed, I consider myself happy. What is he happy about? If you think about Paul's uh, position, probably when he stretched out his hand to speak, and it was an oratory type of uh, gesture, there was chains, fetters, iron fetters attached to his wrists and maybe to his feet. And most likely one of those fetters was attached on the other end to a Roman soldier. Plus he was a political prisoner for two years. So what does he have to be happy about? I believe he was genuinely happy and fortunate to be able to spread the good news of salvation. Consequently, we can be truly blessed and truly happy when we have a small part of doing the Lord's work and when we realize it's not about us. See, this is the cure for it's not about us. It's the cure for bitterness. It's the cure as a Christian for self-righteousness, for unforgiveness, for sin as believers. Because what we're saying in essence is, Lord, you're asking me to have a small part in doing your will. You mean to tell me I get a little sliver of the pie? When we realize where we stand in in, in subjection to the Lord of the universe and the fact that he wants to use us in some small way to deliver the gospel, then we truly are fortunate and blessed no matter what's going on in our life. I mean, this is so, so appropriate. We move from a school, we have a church and a school, then we have a church in another school because that school is doing construction. Who knows where we'll be ne- next? You know what I'm saying? But the fact that we have a small part of learning God's word, of being able to be grown in the word, and to be able to give that word to others who have no hope, that truly is a blessing. And in my prayers, one of the things I thank God for is that even if it ended tomorrow, Lord, you've used me for almost three years to preach the gospel to grow believers, to study your word. And I thank you for that. Again, it's, it's, it's our mindset and where we put ourselves in relation to God. If something was to happen to me, Pastor Anthony would be your senior pastor. 
and you would learn under him. And there's nobody that prays more for my health than Pastor Anthony. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> In verse 6, he's basically saying, in other words, I'm being judged for purporting the hope of the promise of God made to the Jewish patriarchs. Now, the hope of the promise of God made to the Jewish patriarchs. The central theme to Jewish culture, Jewish scripture, the Jewish prophets was the Messiah and the resurrection from Genesis to Malachi. As a matter of fact, it was also central to the first century and prior to the first century uh, rabbinical commentaries. If you read that book, which we have in the bookstore called The Search for Messiah, written by a Jewish doctor, he shows that all the, the rabbinical commentaries, they were excited for the Messiah. Oh, Isaiah 53, this is messianic. And let me tell you why. These were Jewish teachers all the way up into the first century. And then what happened? He kind of tapered off. Well, he wasn't the Messiah we were looking for. We were looking for somebody to overthrow Rome. But, in fact, he was the Messiah. All the great rabbis pointed to Jesus, Yeshua, as the Messiah. Death and resurrection was a mystery in the Old Testament. And it was exciting to see it revealed, starting with the teachings of Jesus. Some, actually, we covered in the book of Acts, some in the Pharisee party often sided with the Apostle Paul. And in Acts 6, 7, we find that many of the priests became believers. That's pretty amazing. Hope. Was, he speaks about hope here, actually a few times. Hope was not only promised to the patriarchs, but anyone called to be God's children. Why don't we ponder hope for a minute? Think about that word hope. What do you hope for today? It's become a catchy political slogan, hasn't it? If you're a smart politician and you think you could send that message of hope to the people and there's something they could cling on, they're going to vote for you because people are looking for hope. But what is your hope in? Do you hope to win the lottery? Do you hope your kids do well when they grow up in the world? Do you hope that the weather stays nice or when I'm done talking you can go out and see a beautiful day? What are you hoping? We use that word loosely and, and carelessly as we use the word love loosely and carelessly. Those are very important words. Now ponder hope if your doctor was to tell you that you had a month to live. I guarantee you that word hope would change in your mind. No more would it be piddly little hope of a nice day or winning the lottery. Now you would hope and your hope would transcend all of eternity. What's going to happen when I die? What happens when, they leave, when I leave the earth? Has God accepted me? Where am I going to go? These are all the important questions. Now your hope has changed because of the importance of your life. Is this it? We see recently in the news that when famous people die, it makes news. When people who aren't famous die, every, people die every day, it doesn't make the news. Uh, Tim Russert, a media personality, very likable guy, was only in his 50s, died of a massive heart attack. And you can see the horror in the eyes of some of the newscasters when they speak about their fellow uh, media personality who died in his 50s. And it's, it's hard for them to contain it. They're supposed to be stoic as newscasters, but watch them. When somebody dies, especially young, and somebody they know, they're, they're scared. Because they're, they're pondering that hope themselves. So I would say this, don't wait till it's too late to seek real hope. You better hope, and we better hope, that we filled God's requirements. Because Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once. That's it. And then the judgment. Do you have that hope? And if you don't, do you want that hope? Because we'll give you that opportunity today. Verse 7. To this promise out... 
to this promise our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. He speaks about the 12 tribes, and you might have heard some spurious groups talk about the lost tribes of Israel. The bottom line is those tribes aren't lost. And we know that in Revelation 7, in our future, there'll be 12,000 Jews who will be separated and sealed with God's seal from each tribe of Israel, except for Ephraim and Dan. And when we go through Revelations, we'll discuss that. But this is another attribute of God. He can't lose anything. You'll never see God say to Gabriel, you know what, I've looked everywhere. I just can't find the keys to the abyss. Where did I put them? You know? And at the same token, it's another attribute of God. He can't lose anything, and he can't lose his people. You'll never see him say, where are my people? Where did they go? Oh, I forgot about so-and-so. You know? God knows who his people are and where they are at all times. Like Psalm 139, the Psalm of David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And he names a whole bunch of places he could go that are remote. And God is still with me. And that should be comforting to us today. Verse 8. Why should it be thought incredible to you, or by you that God raises the dead? Resurrection. Why should we think anything is impossible when it comes to God? I was sharing with Dave, our worship leader, talking about um, the different pseudo-religions and what they believe. And uh, the Jehovah Witnesses don't believe in the deity of Christ. And Sherry overheard what we were saying, and she said, she told an interesting story, and I listened. And it was great, because she said that, uh, you know, the Jehovah Witnesses had come to my house. They rang the doorbell. I opened the door. And she's like, she's not a theologian. And they said, you know, the question was about the deity of Jesus. And they said to her, well, do you believe that Jesus is God? And she said, yes. And when he was on the earth, was he fully God? And she said, yes. They said, do you believe that God is in heaven? They said, and she said, yes. And they said, well, that's interesting. How could God be two places at the same time? And she thought about it for a moment. And she said, because my God can do anything. And therefore, you have nothing to offer me. Have a nice day. That's a childlike faith. My God can do anything. Now, see, me, on the other hand, I actually laugh because I have a different tactic. I play dumb. I let them in the house. I lock the door behind them. And then I get out, <laughs> I get out all my Bibles and my Greek texts, and then they start panicking. So I'm going to prove to you that Jesus was, was God. So I, I really enjoyed her approach. It was much better. But how big is your God? And I've said this before. How big is your God? You know, we, we just no matter what the problem is, and he's testing me and he's teaching me. And, and the more he teaches me, the less I worry. And that's the coolest thing. You want to have a cure for worry? Trust God. The more you trust in God, the less you could worry because it doesn't matter what your situation is. He's, he's sovereign. He's got it in his hands. It's all figured out. No problem. Just trust him. Verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." 
This is more proof that Paul was uh, probably either part of this, uh, the Sanhedrin, at least a voting member of the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish council at the time, or certainly on the who's who list of religious leaders. Uh, the word blaspheme is basically a transliteration from the Greek into English. It's mostly retained in its original form. And what it means is blasphemia, harsh speech, or slander, or defamation. What Paul did before he was the Apostle Paul is he persecuted Christians. He didn't believe that it was the right thing to do. It was against God. So he forced Christians to either deny Christ or to curse Christ, which really, if you think about it, all amount to the same thing. Because when you realize, when it really settles into your heart what your Savior did for you, that he bought you from the slave market of sin and he purchased it with his own blood and stayed on that cross voluntarily, then you really understand that it's just as harsh to deny Jesus as it is to curse him. We remember it with the Apostle Peter when uh, Jesus was arrested and taken away. After the third time, he denied, saying, I do not know the man. He denied even knowing Jesus because he was afraid. And he remembered the rooster crowed in Jesus' words. You know, you, the rooster's going to crow. You will have denied me three times by that time. And the Bible says that Peter wept bitterly. You ever see somebody who's just unconsolable? They're just sobbing and they can't speak and they're, you know, they're hyperventilating. I could picture Peter when he really realized that he denied Jesus. He was just unconsolable and probably needed to be by himself for a while. So the apostle or Paul, before he was the apostle, Paul tried to get people to either curse Christ or deny Christ. And it's tantamount to the same thing. Verse 12. While this occupied... As I journeyed to, or while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. Now this is one of the most important events noted in the, in the New Testament, as it's reiterated several times. And that's one thing about scripture. If you see repetition in the scripture, it's really something to pay attention to. So this conversion of experience of Paul is something that we should really meditate over. There's a lot we can get out of this. Verse 14. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. We went over this in Acts chapter 9, because that actually uh, speaks about Paul's conversion experience. But I want to focus on a few points here. Number one, he says, be careful not to kick against the goads. This is the Lord speaking to the Apostle Paul. Okay? Stop kicking against the goads. Now, just in case you don't know what that means, again, Jesus was awesome in how he used very simple things, very agrarian terms to help people understand spiritual matters. If you had a beast of burden or an ox and you put a yoke around them and you had straps or some type of pole, it would be uh, attached to some type of um, plowman assembly where there was a plow behind it either by itself or there was a, a plowman on top of it. And as this very strong animal would muddle his way through the fields, the plow would break up the field so that you could plant for the harvest and they could do the work probably of 20 men. Now, what happened was a beast of burden probably is not very happy that you put a yoke on his neck and make him go around the fields in, in, you know, in the summertime. So what they would do is they would kick 
You know, the, and if you got kicked, anyone ever get kicked by a horse or a cow or a goat? Some of you are shaking your heads, yes. But it hurts. I mean, they're strong animals. So what they would do is they would take these, you know, sharpened sticks and put them on the plowman's assembly. And when the animal would kick, he would get hurt and he would stop kicking. Sounds kind of mean, but you see, the idea is not to hurt the animal. The idea of the goads is to direct the animal. You see, though, when an animal doesn't go the way he's supposed to go, the byproduct of that failed direction is pain. Now, if you look at us, you see, shaking your head, right? As people, it's the same thing. God directs us in our lives, okay? And when we don't go the way he wants us to go, and it's for our own good, we kick against the goads, and it causes us pain. See, if we followed the right road, and we stayed in the right direction all the time, we wouldn't have that trouble, but we're sinful flesh. So, again, God's primary uh, purpose is not to cause us pain, but if we don't go in his direction, it does cause us pain. And sometimes we push hard against something that may be the Lord's will. And you know what? If it's the Lord's will, it's going to happen. So when we fight against the Lord's will and we kick against the goads and we keep doing it and doing it and doing it, and we find that we're not getting anywhere and we get frustrated, the fault doesn't lie within him. It lies within us. These are the depths that God will go to reach us. The goads and native tongue. In, in other words, it's, it's specifically said that the Lord spoke to, to Saul in the Hebrew language. He spoke to him in his native tongue. And that's the way God speaks to us. God speaks in a way that we can understand that speech. God is a personal God. And the goads are there for our benefit. Unfortunately, though, it doesn't always seem like it's for our benefit. And this is the first out of the three steps to any truly successful ministry. The first step is abasement or humbling. Paul uh, Saul was a religious man. He studied on the teacher Gamaliel. He was on the who's who of the religious list. This guy was the up-and-coming guy on the Jewish scene. Teacher, probably could have made a lot of money. He, he came from a good family. He had Roman citizenship. He, Paul had it all going. He had it all going for him. And then, boom, it came crashing down. And Paul was humble. That was the first step to a truly successful ministry. If God would have just said to Paul or Saul before he was Paul, he would have said, you know what? You're really cool. I really like you. You really got it going on. You're better than everybody else here. Come on, go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you great things. It wouldn't have worked because his pride would have got the best of him. So abasement or humbling. And I think of our very own Al uh, Terhune from Taken to the Streets Ministry. He has a very successful evangelistic ministry. You could put him anywhere and he'll preach the gospel. But you know what? He's been through a humbling process. You know, whether it be health issues or other issues, the man's got a successful ministry because he knows his place under the Lord. Verse 16. He says, but I want to focus on this. He says, but rise and stand on your feet. Rise to your feet. This is the second step here. Repentance and restoration. And repentance basically just means a change of direction. Saul was going in one direction. Religious man, persecuting Christians. He had, he had the world, you know, by the bridle. He had the world where he needed it. And boom, he gets knocked down and he has to change direction. That's repentance. Wherever way you're going, it's not the way of the Lord. You stop at some point in your life and you say, whatever the, the precipitating uh, incident is, you turn around, change direction, and you start following the Lord. And that's what happened here, repentance and restoration. Paul's question, who are you? What did I do wrong? And how do I change it? He he has a divine meeting with the living God. I'm sorry, Lord, how do I change my ways? And we often don't have restoration 
until we've been knocked to the ground as Paul was. There's a term called, you had your clock cleaned. And Paul certainly had his clock cleaned. Um, if you were here last Sunday, Kevin Hay gave his testimony. And uh, he really had his clock cleaned. He went the way of the world. And his wife was basically saying, I'm divorcing you. He threw him out of the house, the whole deal. And he got shot. I always, I always thought, you know, it's funny. I knew the guy for 13 years. I thought he got shot in the leg. He goes, no, I got shot in the head. And when we were out to lunch, he showed me, look, here's the scar. It went in this way. And that was another friend that got shot in the leg. I can't keep my friend straight who got shot here. But the bottom line is Kevin got his clock cleaned. And I can tell you, he's really a genuine man of God. He's got a heart for the Lord. And if you would approach him about something he did wrong, he would certainly find it in his heart to apologize to you. Because he's had that, that humbling and he's had that repentance and restoration. Verse 17. He says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The third step here, commission. Now, you can't have step three, commission, without steps one and steps two. Now, you may say, well, that's not true. There are people with ministries that do have the third step before the first and second step. Well, I'll tell you what, that's an aberration. Because if you start out in pride, if you start out full of yourself, if you start out saying, I have abilities, Lord, I know you need me, I'm better than all these other people, you're going to have problems. It's just a matter of time before that man of God who's filled with pride, it happened to Satan, I will be like the Most High, I will ascend to the heights as God is, and God shot him down. No way. You will never take God's place. So if you get step three without step one and two, there's, there's problems there. And those type of men end up in some type of uh, adulterous relationship, some type of monetary indiscretion, some type of egocentric ministry where it's all about them and they're unattainable. And, and that's just not the way it, it goes according to the scripture or the way it should be. So I would say this, don't feel bad if you've been humbled because the Lord is going to have awesome plans for you. You know, I've been there several times and I'm sure I'll be there many times from this point on. And that's what it is. It's a constant, because we're in our sinful flesh, the Lord has to constantly get our attention. The Lord has to clean our clocks at times and to get us to the point where we actually listen to him. Okay. Paul's commission. There's a few things going on here. We know that it says that he was delivered from the Jews and the Gentiles as well as to be sent back to them. On the surface, it doesn't seem to make much sense. He's delivered from them, but then he's sent back to them. He's delivered from their clutches. Every time somebody tried to kill him, uh, the Lord would remove him from that situation. We know that he goes to Rome, and history tells us that he be, he's beheaded, but he, he has a very fruitful ministry for many years, and that didn't go unnoticed by the Lord. That was his time. Um, and, you know, it's possibly that his death uh, produced fruit from all the people who he discipled, and they took center stage. And, and it's just a constant discipling effect. That's what discipling is all about. We, we don't stop discipling, because when we stop discipling, the original people, when they're gone, who's left to carry on the torch? So discipling is a, continually, uh, a continual effect there. So he's delivered from them in harm, out of harm's way, but we know he's also sent back to them to give them the, the hope that they need, the life-changing gospel, and the message of God of salvation. A few things here. It says, one, to open the eyes. What does that mean? It means that if we're not in Christ, our eyes are not open. We're really in darkness. We're, we're groping around 
without sight because we don't see the world for what it really is. Once you are filled with the Holy Spirit, once you follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, now you have that spiritual sight. It says from darkness to light. Well, we know that the Bible says, especially in John's works, that uh, men love to do evil in the darkness. You know, it, it's, it's a thing behind closed doors. It's, it's a sneaky, it's a, it's a clandestine act. Uh, even, even criminals, you know, they like to do deeds in the darkness, under cover of darkness to cover their deeds. So we, they're going to be taken from darkness to light. Everything is done in the light with God. We know that in the end that even all those things that were done in the darkness, the Bible says, will be brought out into the light. And we know that they're going to go from the power of Satan to the power of God. I want to read 2 Corinthians 4, two verses. 2 Corinthians 4. Three through four. Paul says this, but even if our gospel is veiled, okay, it's 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 veiled, it's covered, uh, it it, ca- it can't be really seen for what it is. It is veiled to those who are perishing, because the spiritual man knows spiritual things. He knows all things. The natural man cannot perceive spiritual things. So even if the gospel is veiled, okay, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And that that veil better be lifted before they die. Whose minds, the God of this age, and that's Satan. And some people scoff, especially in our society. We're so technologically savvy. We're so educated. Oh, the thought of Satan. That's such an archaic term to get people to be good so they don't go to hell. No, Satan is real. The irony is those who don't believe in Satan are the ones being controlled by him. And that's the irony. If you don't believe in Satan and you think it's a joke and the guy with the pitchfork, you're being controlled by him without even really knowing it. He's deceived you. So whose minds the God of this age, Satan, has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Okay? So that's what we have here. Uh, and, we, and also it's to receive the forgiveness of sins. Okay? That's part of the gospel message. To receive the forgiveness of sins. It's a gift. An inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in the Lord. And that's the gospel story. That's the gospel story. Um, we talk about repentance. We talk about God getting attention, our attention. We talk about changing our ways. We're talking about asking forgiveness for our sins. We're talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. We're talking about moving towards God. And we have an inheritance. Okay? We all get an inheritance when we die. And that inheritance is those of us who are in the faith, who believe in, in Jesus Christ, we have the inheritance of everlasting life. 1 John uh, 5 tells us that he who has the Son has life, eternal life. He who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. So our commission, how does it apply to us, is really no different than Paul's commission. It's just a different time period. It's really no different than the Emberley's uh, commission. It's just that it's a different world away. We all have the same commission. Our commission is not to just sit around and, and hear the Bible and fellowship and that's where it ends, 20, 30, 40 years. Our commission is to disciple people. Our commission is to go out into that world that's dying. All you have to do is read the news on any given day and see what a stinking mess this world is. Our commission is to be a light to the world. And it could be your example. It could be what you say. It could be a combination of both your example and what you say. But the bottom line is two things. It's still to win the Jew to Yeshua, their beloved Messiah, through the Scripture. And it's to also win the Gentile to the Savior with the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word.